Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. Today, we're talking to Bertie Hubbard, co-founder and CEO of MyTutor, an online tutoring company founded in 2013 to connect students with slightly older peers to help them learn. Hubbard and his co-founders had three main goals, to deliver high quality near peer learning, to make scheduling easier by doing the lessons online and increasing access to affordable tutoring. MyTutor works not just with families, but also with schools. Not surprisingly, it's grown massively in the pandemic with demand tripling. What we're seeing is not only a greater adoption of online, but parents wanting to support their children in a more nuanced way around the sort of core offering they get out of school. And I guess it sort of fits very nicely with how we think about our role in education. Today, MyTutor is facing an even bigger opportunity. In June, the UK government announced it would spend £350 million to help disadvantaged kids catch up by funding free tutoring for them. MyTutor was one of four companies to be chosen. Learning science has long established the effectiveness of tutoring and helping kids to learn. This new national program will test whether companies like MyTutor can be scaled to help mitigate social inequality rather than exacerbate it. Bertie Hubbard, thanks for joining us. Pleasure just be on. Thank you so much for having me. So you founded an online tutoring company in 2013. If you had told me you had founded an online tutoring company today, I would get it. But in 2013, why did you do it? So there have been three things that we've tried to sort of keep in mind um, in growing my tutor. The first of those is high quality near peer learning. Uh, the second is taking a lot of the friction out of the current process. And the third is increasing access. And I guess online really spoke to all of those. Like we wanted to match people up with someone close in age, but when you leave school and go to university, you're in different cities. We want to take the friction out of the journey, but if you want to try and meet up and somebody's stuck in a traffic jam and gonna be 10 minutes late, it's really awkward to reorganize that. And we want to increase access, reach areas that didn't previously have tutors locally, people who couldn't necessarily afford to put that much time or, or that same cost to find somebody who's local. And again, having that online made a lot of difference. So I think it just really spoke to a lot of the things we were trying to solve for when we started the company. That's the online piece. Talk to me about the tutoring piece. Why did tutoring appeal to you as a company? Why did you want to do that? So I think for um, there are a lot of solutions in the education sector that are trying to fully digitize the solution and maybe take a person out of it. For us, uh, we, weren't, we were approaching this as... Uh, trying to create the right platform for the best learning interactions to happen. And tutoring is one of the most best evidenced ways of having an impact. And we thought if we could enable the best people out there to have um, richer interactions, that would have a far greater impact on learning outcomes than if we were to take our own views of what would work in education and try and create that into a digital product. There's so much nuance in the relationship between two people uh, that it would be very difficult to replicate all of that with a digital solution. And so we were yeah, very, very keen to have at the heart of that a close human to human relation because of all the extra benefits you get when you're speaking to a person who laughs at your jokes, um, disappointed if you don't turn up next week. Like, there's so much more to it. 
So that's interesting. There's, the, I guess, one approach could have been, again, a, a sort of digital solution for a classroom, and the other is sort of this one-to-one -one relationship. And I think you're referring a little bit to the Benjamin Bloom study, right? Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and subsequently, Education Endowment Fund has come out with a lot of research that, that show that you can make five months extra progress from targeted weekly sessions. I think it also just makes a lot of sense, right? If you're struggling with something in a class, and it's a large class, and you want help solving that specific issue, but you don't get the attention, having someone just take you through it. Why is near-peer important? And why don't you just explain to people what near-peer means? So peer-to-peer -peer would be somebody, let's say, at the same stage as you. Near-peer is also called vertical tutoring. It's somebody who's been through what you're going through already, uh, and they're the other side of it. So they may be a couple of years on. In our particular model, we look at mostly at school pupils learning from university students. So they've been through the system, they've come out the other side with top grades, um, and then we've also interviewed them to show that they're high quality. So that near-peer relationship is someone who knows what it's like, knows what you're going through, and importantly, remembers what it's like to learn that. If you think about somebody who's fluent in a language uh, and you're just trying to learn the basics, they might pick up on your pronunciation rather than give you a, the sort of core fundamental building blocks. Somebody who's just been through the same channels, if you're a sort of adult listening to this and you've just changed jobs, it's the person who made the same job transition last year. Um, and they remember like, how difficult it was, how they had to relearn a new sector how they found certain people helpful or not helpful. It's just really relevant, timely information and a deep understanding and intuitive empathy of what you're going through. So right after our last conversation, I have two daughters who are 10 and 12, and my husband was helping the younger one do some maths. And after our conversation, I said to him, you know, it might be more effective if the older one helped the younger one to do maths. And we suggested it and stepped back and it was amazing. It was, <laughs> she had genuinely just been through, you know, long multiplication and long division. And by the way, she had learned it a different way from us and could teach that way. And they would go to the same school. So it was a real light bulb moment for me. You work with schools, which is quite different from a lot of tutoring companies. Why is that? There are two reasons, actually. One of them is increasing access. The other is increasing adoption. So the thing which always used to hold us back was the adoption of online learning. We spend a lot of time thinking about why it made so much sense, but, but everyone else would sort of, they're looking for a tutor, they might spend like a few minutes on their phone while walking between one place and the next, uh, and they wouldn't engage with the whole idea of a new solution, they're just looking for somebody in Liverpool. And if we weren't somebody in Liverpool, then they pressed the back button and went to the next. Um, so we wanted to find somebody who'd really take the time to think about the best solution and engage with it. And so head teachers who are thinking about maybe 50 people in their school who wanted help would really think through the pros and cons in, in a more sort of detailed, nuanced way and would be quicker to adopt. But the second is the point about increasing access. Ultimately, we think this is a solution which shouldn't just be for those who can afford it. And the other advantage of working with schools is they had budgets to help people um, who couldn't afford it for themselves. And so we actually found we were increasing access by partnering with these schools. And so it's sort of a win-win. Not only were we um, finding people who could help show parents and, and the consumer market the way, we were also finding a way to reach peoples who wouldn't have been able to afford it for themselves. And what are the challenges of working through a school system? Well, I think one of the challenges is teachers are incredibly busy too. They've got so much on their plates and so they're desperate to help each of the peoples, but there are so many demands on them that fitting in another solution around their busy um, schedules, um, you've got to make that as seamless as possible. Unlike the consumer platform where let's say you're looking for your child, you'd go on, you'd arrange the time with the tutor. If we've got a school with 80 pupils or 200 pupils, we're basically playing like mum and dad to 200 pupils in terms of arranging and scheduling those sessions. So we really had to think through how we 
um, dealt with programs at scale, but still gave the same sort of thought and attention to how we were making that match. And so it's really, a, you needed to build a matching system. Matching systems, um, like automated cover slots if somebody didn't turn up in time so that you could get somebody back in. Redeploying, so if the people didn't turn up from the school, that you could redeploy the tutor so that they were still getting the value from the service they're paying from. There were sort of all sorts of nuances when we started helping schools that we hadn't seen when we we're helping just parents. And how do you vet your tutors? So there are a couple of stages. There's initial entry, like we want, we want to screen for people who've shown some degree of mastery of the subjects they want to teach, they're studying to a level higher. And then we have one-to-one interviews to check, not just is this like a bright, smart student, but can they also build a rapport? And we've got tens of thousands of tutors. So what we learned, similar to the near-peer model, is some of our more experienced tutors are now the interviewers. So people who've been on our platform for a couple of years who we think are brilliant tutors and we can see the evidence of that, they're the people who run the first round of interviews. You then have effectively the parent has the free meeting. So that's to check, not just is the right person to communicate effectively, but is there a fit? Are they going to get on with my child? Is this someone I want my child to learn from? And, and parents are sort of also interviewing in a way of like, is this someone I want my child to be like? Um, so that fit's really important. And then we have ongoing evaluation. So every session is recorded and that's not just for safety, but also if there's a low rating, you just get feedback on the sessions, parents rate each session. Um, and so there's an ongoing assessment and it's all pay as you go. So if a parent decides they don't like a session, um, then they can stop. And so there's always this like, ongoing accountability. And you can use that recording to listen after the session as well. So something Khan Academy and Sal Khan talk a lot about. You know, sometimes we need two or three listenings before we really understand a concept. They have access to that. They don't have to pay extra for that. Exactly. Uh, I think one of the greatest challenges of learning is like the decay. And, and, right, and, and once you learn something over time, you forget that. And that's going to be accentuated by the sort of six-month gap many people had from learning. And so being able to revisit that. Um, and there's also quite a nice, um, like fear of loss is one of the <laughs> most driving emotions. And if you're in a tutorial and you know you don't have to note things down, so you can review it afterwards, it makes you a bit more relaxed about taking notes at the time. And you can actually sort of free up your mind and just engage a bit more naturally because you know, I can review this, right? I can come back to this afterwards if, if I want to. Is the figure that you accept only one in eight applicants still accurate? Yeah, if anything, we've had even greater choice in recent months, just because the set of opportunities and work opportunities available to university students is somewhat reduced in lockdown. And so we, we've seen a huge surge of applications around lockdown. So yeah, well, one in eight, and, and if not, slightly higher. And what kind of training do the tutors get? So initially, when we first started, we just were very careful around our sort of selection process. Um, increasingly, as we've grown as a company and, and had a better idea of what we see works, we start creating training modules. Uh, and so we work a lot with our school teachers and our school partners to focus on the areas that really deliver effective sessions. And so we've got about 12 different training modules. We now QA um, a large portion of our tutorials. So we have an internal team who are professionals who can look back at some of the sessions and then help provide feedback and have to make them more effective. Uh, and I'm interested, having seen how marketplaces provide peer-to-peer feedback, longer term, whether we can have, uh, where as long as we anonymize and we keep everything, uh, we're respectful of everyone's identities and, and the lesson content, how we can get some peer-to-peer feedback as well so people can learn from each other and continually improve. You said something interesting about parents want to be able to see themselves in their kid's tutor a little bit, right? Is this, is this person aspirational for me? And you say that you draw from some of the best universities Will, will you continue to kind of keep that group elite? Do you want it to be that elite group because parents need that group to be elite or will you broaden it? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think we started there because you have to start somewhere. 
Um, and if you start with a smaller group, you can make it right for them. But we're already broadening that. And so we've already extended to twice that number of universities beyond just your sort of top Russell group. And look, many top form universities are outside the Russell group. So we're, we're already extending that. We just got to be careful as we extend that, let's say you're bringing on somebody who might have a B in maths um, rather than A in maths. Do they have enough mastery of that subject to deliver it? And how has COVID affected your business? Over the summer months, we saw huge multiples because you were comparing it to a period typically post-exams where people were down tools, we'd see multiples of five or six times year on year. I think even as people come back to school and even as we're sort of lapping last year's back to school busy period, we're still seeing over three times the level of demand that we saw previous year. And, and, and I hear from other ed tech companies who operate in markets that feel like they're coming out of the side of it, like China, those rates of an interest in online learning have remained elevated. The most sort of revolutionary thing for us and I think for our sector is the pace of change it's brought and the level of awareness. On a, on a sort of micro level, like the frontier we were fighting was the adoption of online learning. And that clearly has been blown away. Like people want to learn online because it's safer. The, the second slightly more interesting and, and maybe the one I didn't expect was while the UK is definitely up there with our total spend on education, more than 6% of GDP versus an average of larger economies, maybe up 5%. That spend has historically been bundled up um, and spent with institutions like schools and universities. Whereas in lockdown, parents were sort of accidentally became stewards of their children's learning. And that drastically increased their like, awareness of where the gaps were and their desire to support them outside of these institutions. Um, and, and so what we're seeing is not only a greater adoption of online, but parents wanting to support their children in a more nuanced way around the sort of core offering they get out of school. And I guess it sort of fits very nicely with how we think about our role in education. If you compare public uh, education system to a public transport system, or like the institutions, let's make an analogy with, with the system's also designed to pick you up where you are and take you where you want to go. And, and let's say you have a bus driver, you've got one driver and 30 seats. Let's say you pick up 26 people, pick them up near where they want to start, drop them off near where they want to go. But if you leave three people behind, do you take all 26 people back just to pick up those three and leave the one person ahead just waiting? Or do you keep on driving, leave those three people behind, but you do keep those 26 moving along and pick up the person who's waiting ahead? What we see as our role, and we think it's increasing demand for, is for a service to fill in those gaps. So we're not saying replace the bus with 26 taxis, but for the three who left behind, can you pick those people up and bring them back to the same pace as everyone else on the bus? For the person who's ahead, can you help that person continue making progress without having to wait for the rest of the people to catch up with them? And so what I think you're seeing in this post-lockdown is a greater interest from parents to supplement their education as sort of awareness moves to the education sector. So I think will consumer spend. And you'll hopefully see this impressive flywheel where the pace of change in this sector really picks up. Is there more of an appetite from investors for these products because of what COVID exposed? Investors have definitely noticed the pickup of growth in the sector and are thinking more carefully about the structural shifts that are needed in this sector. And I guess it's, it's linked to the comment we were saying earlier, like parents are more aware of the gaps of their children and so are investors, right? And, and as parents' attention shifts to education, so does consumer spend. As investors' attention shifts to the education sector, so does investment pounds. So I think the two are very closely coupled. Traditionally, in my mind, tutoring has been the preserve of the rich. Um, they use it to secure advantage and to um, expand their advantage. How are you trying to change that? And do you really think that will change? So you're right, there's a problem. And that goes broader than just tutoring. I think just people's engagement with learning. Early in lockdown, teacher tap surveyed 
over 8,000 panellists and found that in the most advantaged state schools, just 14% of teachers felt their students were doing less than an hour a day, whereas in the most disadvantaged state schools, 43% felt their students were doing less than an hour. And then that's a stark difference. So there are these big gaps and they go more broadly than just tutoring. I think the reason tutoring and, and near-peer tutoring can help pick that up is it can be very targeted, um, much more so than sort of, say, focusing on an entire class. And if you've got a near-peer model, you've got as many people about to go through it as people who've just been through it. It's a model that scales quite naturally, like your supply scales with your demand. So you've got this near-peer model um, where you fix the supply shortage. You've got this online-only model that helps you remove some of the inefficiencies. And what you're increasingly seeing is a public awareness. The Education Endowment Fund has been campaigning for years for a publicly funded system to help address these uh, problems at scale. And you're finally seeing that adopted with the rollout of this national tuition program um, to help try and address those gaps at scale for the people who can't afford it for themselves. So I think if you solve the supply challenge, you solve the logistics and you solve the funding challenges, then there are lots of good reasons to believe why you might be able to start to address some of those gaps in in a more targeted fashion and a larger scale than we have before. That's a perfect segue. So this summer, the UK government announced that it would invest £350 million to get tutoring to the most disadvantaged students. And you were picked as one of the four companies to work with the Education Endowment Foundation to implement this pilot program for tutoring. Were you surprised by that? Did you know that was coming? The Education Endowment Fund has done a lot of the heavy lifting there. They've shown the impact of tuition. They've heroed it as one of the most effective ways to address inequality. And we were hoping to work with them to do a randomized control test measuring the efficacy of an online near-peer program for one-to-one tuition. However, we weren't expecting a national program. Uh, like we, we didn't anticipate a uh, national lockdown. So that pilot was designed to launch a new online tuition pilot to help 1,600 pupils and see how that runs and what we learn from that in order to implement a national tuition program in a more effective way. So the pilot program was helping 1,600 pupils and we were helping 1,000 of those pupils. What do you see as both the opportunity and the challenge of scaling this program? The main challenge here is launching something at real scale. How do you maintain the standards? How do you make sure that the quality of each session is going to be what you want it to be? And a lot of companies are going to be scaling to levels of a different order of magnitude of what they're used to. So I'm absolutely certain that if you wanted to get all the students in front of a tutor, you could do it um, in some form or another. But how do you do it well? For us, it won't be an order of magnitude different to what we're used to. So I think it's... I'm less worried about um, keeping the same standards for companies that have already been operating at scale. I'm more interested in how some of these more local providers might, might be able to do the same thing. The pilot's run, it's been completed. They've got some takeaways already. One of the issues is how do you drive attendance? And so they can then match that with some of their survey results that if a TT really gets on with their tutor and really enjoys it, then they're more likely to attend. And so as a provider, you can think about how do you help your tutor create an effective rapport if that's going to be a key driver of attendance to make sure that the program is as effective as you want it to be. And so what have you found? What are some effective ways to help build rapport online? I feel like everybody needs to know that right now. Yeah, look, I think, again, this has come back to one of the things we benefit from is because a lot of our tutors have been through the same thing. Like A lot of them had their education disrupted too. And so I think where people can really relate and understand what they're going through is, is important. Um, one of the other things we didn't necessarily expect 
um, when we first started working with schools is the sort of subtle comments that can have a dramatic impact on confidence. So if you're a student um, on free school meals who not necessarily your parents have been to a a university and you're learning from a student at a top university and you're working a problem and they say, obviously it's that. Um, That sort of offhand comment of obviously actually can have a real impact on the student of like, oh, look, I'm stupid for not having known that. Um, And so just helping our um, tutors understand better the background, the sort of impacts on their offhand comments can have on the confidence of a pupil can be really important to helping that pupil stay present, stay engaged and feel confident in what they're learning. Like if you're asked to do something, somebody just says like, do this, do that and expects the world run says like, I'm asking you to do this. And like, I found it really difficult. Like I struggled, but here's how I do it. Like surfacing some of the challenges along the way. It's much easier for people to see like how they're actually going to get there and be more confident in getting there. Do you think that online tutoring is as effective as in-person tutoring? Or is that a compromise you're willing to make to get a lot of the points you talked about in the beginning, the access, the equity? So they're, they're different. Um, and in many ways, they're the same, right? You still have a person on the other side. A lot of people, when they think about online learning, think it might be pre-recorded content. So you, you do have a interactive dialogue. I genuinely think that you can take a lot of these elements and, and provide a better experience online. Um, so there are these d- differences you talk about which aren't possible like um, in the offline world, like you can't have as broad a choice of who you work with. You can't have sessions that are pre-recorded. The scale we can now operate at allows us to invest a lot more back into creating a higher quality product. Like we can start to give, um, in this sort of online lesson space, you can start to give uh, tutors tools um, to create a richer learning environment. And we're not there yet. But if imagine if we're talking about a volcano uh, and then in your online environment, we can go and look at the volcano together um, like that's a far richer learning environment than we could offer if we're just in the same room. If you look around the world right now, tutoring is much more part of the culture of education in India and in China, just to cite two countries. We talked about how it's sort of part of the culture here for a particular sector of society. Do you see it over 10 years, 20 years, put a time frame on it, becoming the norm? And that's something that most kids have and not a select group. If, if, we, if we keep on the near peer line, I think it almost is the norm, right? Some families have this sort of social equity already. You have the older sibling who's also had good opportunities and you learn from them. You talked about it already with your 12 and 10 year old. Already the, where, where it's this sort of learn from your peer, like that's innate, right? We're, we're sort of emotionally wired to look at somebody a bit further on, see where they succeed and where they fail. It's more like how hard it is to make that happen. Um, currently, <laughs> I think we're, the the barriers to entry for that is what's going to come down and make it not just happen more broadly, but more regularly. And what do you see as the biggest opportunities for your own company to grow? Maybe you can give us a sense of the mix of schools and consumers and which of those is going to grow faster. So typically with the schools program, you find people who are on free school meals, maybe bottom 15% income bracket. And so you might expect that to become 15% of our, of our base because that would be proportional to the population. What we found is that actually close to a third of our work was directed to helping those pupils because teachers were faster to adopt this. But over time, if this really does become a sort of core to society, as you suggested it might, um, that's when you probably see it start to trend closer towards the overall proportion of the population of that income bracket. So it's more teachers in schools now, but you would expect it to shift to more consumers over time if that adoption becomes more common. Yeah, I just say shift being more proportional. Um, like this isn't, we're not saying we go away from 
lower income, like that's core to us. But if they are 15% of the population, um, they, they will get closer to that rather than currently where you've got a 2x overweight and maybe as part of the national tuition program, it will be even greater. What are other potential products that you would build or business lines that you're thinking about? If you come back to the analogy of the transport sector, if you come back to the idea that the sort of 30 seat model works for the people who are the 26 people who are, who are on the bus, there are three people left behind and there's a clear point to catch up, then you might look at small group tuition. And one of the hardest things for some of these transport companies, let's say your, your taxi companies to do with, with shared rides was the matching, having enough liquidity to say, look, these people are going a sufficiently similar route to match them up. And also the challenge they had was what's the dialogue between like, if you've got two or three people who've never met each other sitting in the same taxi together, like what's that relationship like? Like that brings new complexities. And I think doing that with schools first, where they can help us make the matches, help understand who's in which group is going to be much easier and as we think about how we make those matches and you're going to have to really upskill and give the tutor a lot more training and support to help three different people still get value out of that same session. Um, so small groups are an interesting area. And then you can start to think about not just different sizes of groups, but also like different roads. What if actually you want to go a different way, right? What if you want to learn out how to run a budget before you go to university? Something else that's important to you but isn't covered by the syllabus. The content's not there. Can we create that content? Or if the content is there, can we give you a driver who can help steer you down there? That steward to help you go through that content um, could be really valuable and help fix some of the sort of broader gaps as you think about your learning journey. A big part of the demand in this country for tutoring is tied to the fact that there are so many exams. We're starting to have a broader conversation societally about whether that's a good thing and whether we should be scaling that back. Do you have a view on that? I um, was really pleased to see that there's a slight decoupling of that this year with exams cancelled. And people continued to top up their learning because they realized that um, if you just stop for an extended period of time, you forget everything. And so the slightly unnatural cadence of taking information, then cram for a couple of weeks, do your exams and, and away you go, is an interesting thing to look at and reassess. There's already been a lot of research on what's called the summer slide, where you stop learning for an extended period of time and forgot all of what you're learning. And then you come back to school and some people have kept it going and, and they're ready to go. Some people haven't. And as a teacher, um, you've suddenly got an incredibly disparate group um, that you've got to try and bring along the same journey. So the assessment period is a bit more regular so, or, or lower stakes. So it's not just this big stress. I think you could see a much more effective system. But our core role here is to support people through it rather than necessarily say we're the ones to define it. OK, super quick questions. What is your favorite book about learning? Not necessarily a book. But uh, Barbara Oakley's MOOC on, on Coursera of learning how to learn, I find it fascinating that I went through the most intensive years of my education with such a superficial understanding of how I was actually learning and, and like how memories are formed and lost. Uh, and Barbara in, in that uh, course brings a real energy to it. She ties it up to some of the latest research around how our brains work. It just gave me a much more sort of fundamental understanding of how we learn. And your favorite book or other about life, not about learning. I'm not a, naturally a, a fantasy fan, but The Name of the Wind is such a well-constructed, like playful and poetic narrative that I got completely swept up in it. Um, it's by Patrick Rothfuss. And I think if, if anyone's looking for a bit of escapism that, that isn't like a Netflix type series, um, then yeah, it, it's, it's brilliantly written and then so well-constructed. Find me the person who's not looking for a bit of escapism right now. <laughs> and finally, what are you binge watching? So, I think I'm one of the few people I know without a Netflix account. Uh, I think I learned what? early from playing video games as a child that I wasn't very effective at self-regulating. 
Um, so, so I haven't I haven't had a sort of a sort of series binge watch, but I I did recently revisit some of the sort of 1960s Disney's classics, uh, maybe like a sweep of nostalgia of, of the Sword and the Stone and the Robin Hood, um, which were absolutely sort of classics growing up. Um, but I, I wouldn't say binge watching so, so much. I love it. You've been binge watching Robin Hood. Bertie, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. What struck me most about this conversation is the sense that we could be at a turning point for how tutoring is viewed and accessed in the UK and in the world. Until now, tutoring has been out of the reach for most families, too expensive, not readily available, and largely an opportunity for the privileged few. But companies like MyTutor are changing the game, and COVID, of course, has changed everything. Governments know they face a crisis, with millions of kids falling even further behind, and investing in tutoring seems a promising approach. I loved hearing about the power of near-peer learning and can attest to using it with my own kids after speaking with Bertie. The intuitive empathy of it is surely needed following the past seven months. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you did too. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, Stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.